Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 326 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get right into our conversation after a word from our sponsors. The reviews for Sisterhood Heels are rolling in, and I simply cannot stop smiling. At the Hot Girl Books on Instagram shared, Finished reading this warm hug of a book last night, and wow, it made me want to hug my sister friend so bad. Sisterhood Heels is a beautiful guide on how we as Black women can use our community and friends to aid in our healing process. Thank you so much for the beautiful review. Have you grabbed your copy yet? Get one for yourself and a friend at sisterhoodheels.com. For the first time in a while, I have quite a bit of fun travel coming up this summer, and I'm really counting on Macy's to help round out my wardrobe for some of these trips. Right now, I've got my eye on a new bag and sandals from Coach and some super cute tops and dresses from Macy's on 34th brand. And you can never really have too many pairs of sunglasses, and there are a lot of cute options to explore right now. If you need a little help getting your summer look together, shop at Macy's.com slash own your style. You may have heard that most people who are black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional-grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girlbomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This Sex Positive September, we recognize that part of being sex positive is taking responsibility for your sexual health by destigmatizing the conversation around STIs, knowing your status, and staying up to date on the latest information. Joining me for this conversation is returning guest Dr. Tanya M. Bass. 
Dr. Bass holds certifications as a certified sexuality educator with the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, as well as a certified health education specialist. She is currently faculty for the University of Michigan Sexual Health Certificate Program, as well as the lead instructor for human sexuality at her alma mater, North Carolina Central University. In our conversation, we explored the common types of STIs and their symptoms, the importance of education and the prevention of STIs, and how getting to know your body can help you better recognize STI symptoms. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBGInSession. Or join us over in the Sister Circle to talk more about the episode. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Bass. Yes, it's exciting. Been like following and sharing uh, with people. I know your following is growing and growing, so that's amazing. Yes, yes. So the last time you were with us was in 2020. <laughs> A lot has happened since then. Update us on what's been going on for you since your last appearance here. Yeah, I think since my last appearance, I actually became Dr. Bass because I completed my dissertation in April 2021. Been working and doing a couple of things with our professional organization. If you see my background, it literally looks like an institution because it is an institution. (laughs) I'm at NCCU, which is my alma mater here in Durham, and I just finished teaching class. So just been teaching and loving it. We brought you back because we are, of course, again, celebrating Sex Positive September. I mean, we wanted to have, I think, a very important conversations around STDs and STIs. As we start, can you tell us the definition of an STD and STI? Is there a difference between those terms? So I want to say, like, historically, as we think about STDs and STIs, like the name has definitely transitioned always think about TV shows when people ask me about this, but the original kind of name was like venereal disease. And I remember when JJ on Good Times had VD. So (laughs) it went from being this weird, uncomfortable term of venereal disease to sexually transmitted disease, which meant that it was any kind of condition that could be transmitted from person to person through sexual contact. And I think as we've evolved, there are some of those types of conditions, whether it's a bacteria or virus or even a parasite that people get, but some of them don't cause disease. Like your body might be in a disease state or a state of illness at the moment, but you don't live with that for the rest of your life. And so most people were trying to transition away because it had such a negative connotation to infection, which is exactly what it is because this pathogen or this bacteria, parasite, or virus comes into your body and infects you with it. And so with treatment, it actually will go away, kind of like a sinus infection or a cold. They're infections that are temporarily, although there are some things that could be lifelong, it just helped with the explanation of like you become infected with this thing, but you're not a diseased individual. The sad part is the worlds aren't meeting yet. So you'll hear people say STD slash STI or D slash I because some of the documentation from even the federal government, like the CDC, 
doesn't match the language that they use to help reduce stigma. So we still have to use the terms interchangeably because some documents you'll see like it's STD Awareness Month versus STI Awareness Month or something like that. But pretty much just letting people know that there's not a real difference. It's about the stigma and the connotation around disease versus infection. Got it. So to help continue to decrease the stigma, the term we should be using is STIs. Okay. So can you talk to me about some of the most common STIs? And I'm also interested to hear if that has changed within the last 10 years. Is there a new STI that is more prevalent now than that was not maybe like several years ago? Well, there have been some shifts, right? Earlier in the years, like let's say the 70s, we saw more people having gonorrhea or the clap and people would say that people were burning, right? Because it caused burning upon urination. But after that, we started seeing more chlamydia, which is very similar to gonorrhea, but under the microscope, of course, two different bacteria, but the infection works the same way in our bodies. The shift has been, we have seen rates of syphilis, which has been around pretty long too, but we saw a decrease in syphilis and then an increase in the late 90s. We had a lot of efforts especially in North Carolina where I am, we had a syphilis elimination project, right? Like it was basically going to different places, trying to eliminate and reduce that because it is 100% preventable out of all the infections. And we saw those rates come down in the South. But during COVID, we started seeing a resurgence or increase in syphilis due to a range of factors. So if I were to say, if we think about the bacterial infections primarily, It would be gonorrhea and chlamydia, and I use them together, and then syphilis, and then syphilis rising. If I think about viral infections, HIV, of course, is still very common, with herpes probably being the most common because a lot of times people don't even know they have it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So what are some of the common like shared symptoms of STIs that people should be on the lookout for? Now, here's the wild thing, I guess as well. Like I really get excited about it, but not in like a weird way, but ultimately like the science behind it is kind of like knowing how it works, right? The epidemiology of it. And so when we look at gonorrhea and chlamydia, For many people, there are no symptoms at all. It's laying in your body, it's growing, it's doing its thing, but it's also being attuned to your body or aware of your body. One of the most common symptoms is an abnormal discharge, and that's going to usually come from the urethra or maybe around the vagina. And it's something that you have to be aware of to know that it's abnormal. So you have to be attuned to your body. And then secondly, which is a sign we were talking about earlier, which is the burning upon urination. So when you urinate, if there's like a tingling, itching or burning kind of feeling during urination, those are the most common symptoms. Now with syphilis, which is another bacterial infection, those symptoms can mimic a whole lot of things because syphilis is a stage disease. So during the first stage, a lot of people don't know they have it because the first symptom is like, I will use the word sore, but most of the time when you hear sore, people are like, it hurts, but it doesn't hurt. So it's really a shanker and it's going to appear where you became infected. So if you have oral sex, it's going to be in your mouth. If you have anal sex or vaginal sex, it's going to be on your vagina or your penis or your shaft or your testicles, anywhere in your anatomy. And the interesting thing about it 
is that this sore or chancre is going to go away on its own. So you see something abnormal. You're like, wow, what is that? It doesn't hurt. You may or not put something home remedy on it and then it's going to go away. But that just means the bacteria now is basically going through your body and causing more infection. So those symptoms in the second stage could be like a rash on your hands. It could look like eczema. It could look like psoriasis. A real kind of not really funny story, but when I was working as disease investigator, my dermatologist had diagnosed someone that I had given syphilis results to as having psoriasis. And as a specialist in his field, he looked at this skin condition and was like, that is definitely psoriasis. But it was actually a secondary rash of syphilis that just occurred in this individual. So they also call syphilis the great imitator. So you could have a rash and not really know that it's actually syphilis or an SCI. So the most common would be no symptom, the burning upon urination and the discharge. And then it could be different rashes or appearances on your skin that could be presented as syphilis. Okay, Dr. Bass. So given that the most common symptom is no symptom, what kinds of things do you think people need to know then to try to keep themselves safe or to be able to go to a physician or a medical professional to kind of get checked out? What should they be looking for? That's what I was saying. I feel like people really need to examine and look at and be aware of their own bodies. As someone who may have a menstrual cycle, what does the discharge or I'm using discharge, but maybe the vaginal lubrication look like throughout your monthly cycle, how it feels, how it looks, etc. Being attuned to what your labia looks like, your genitals in general for everybody so that you can say if this spot wasn't there before and realize that you might need to go in. The biggest thing is to normalize testing, to go in, talk to your sex partners, to normalize testing and really normalize a diagnosis. One of the things I've come into acceptance of and want people to accept as well is that having an STD diagnosis can be a part of a normal and even, air quotations, I guess, healthy sexual development. Like it could happen to you and you can also manage it. You can also cure it. You could also not have it happen again and it's part of your sexual experience and not the end of a sexual experience or have to be something that you feel condemned for for the rest of your life because it can happen. Does it happen to everybody? No. But can it happen to everybody? Yes. So I think having those open conversations with your doctors and being attuned to what your body actually looks like and feels like. Mm-hmm. So how would you suggest somebody get started with familiarizing themselves with their bodies? It's good that you asked me that. So I was telling you, I just finished teaching class and we're just covering anatomy and having the conversation with students and asking them, like, have they really looked at their genitalia before? And most of them have not. And they think of it as weird or uncomfortable. And ideally, it kind of is weird and uncomfortable, but it's your body. Like, we look at our faces all the time. We probably look at our legs and arms and our hands. I know we look at our hands a lot. And so just looking at, are there changes? Like, what is this actually supposed to look like? And we think about, even when I'm teaching... I try to be as diverse as I can in images that I use around anatomy, but it's still not your anatomy. 
And so ultimately you have to do that. So I encourage them to take a mirror, (laughs) spend a little time with themselves and (laughs) get to know what they look like and even compare, not in a, they want to change their body kind of way, but compare their bodies like with the anatomy assignment of like learning the exterior body parts so that they can identify them for themselves. But yeah, it really takes getting used to your own body and a level of comfort. And I think some of our parents, even grandparents, have really fostered a sense of that and making people comfortable. But it's still, in many instances, uncomfortable for them to even have those conversations. So you don't always learn it in your house. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Vasquez. because I feel like I remember somebody asking me a question like that, like probably a professor like you asking a question like that in undergrad and a lot of people feeling uncomfortable and like, oh, absolutely not. We haven't done that. And I was curious to hear if students now, 20 plus years later, were feeling more comfortable. But it sounds like you're still getting a lot of like, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. And you having to encourage them to like actually pull out a mirror and like look at their genitals. I think there's this weird stigma I think perhaps in our households, perhaps in general society of like, why are you looking at yourself? Something must be wrong with you. And it's kind of like, it's okay for your partner to look, but not you. And that's definitely an imbalance. Like you should be looking at it even before your partner (laughs) looks at it, in my opinion. Right, right. So I'm curious, Dr. Bass, it feels like maybe five to 10 years ago, there was this huge push around like the HPV vaccine. Have you seen or has the research shown like a significant decrease in HPV related to the vaccine? I started working on even a, a project to prevent HPV or prevent cervical cancer a few years back. Wow. And it was actually 10 years ago (laughs) to do that and encouraging the use of the vaccine. And of course, just like with any vaccine, we've seen this with COVID, there are some hesitations around that. And then when you start thinking about something that is going to reduce an STI in, in this case, it also makes people uncomfortable because they think you're giving someone the green light, especially young people, because it was predominantly for individuals who are like nine to 24 years old, that you're encouraging sexual behavior. When many of us already know, folks probably even without consent are already engaging in sexual activity, but it's also preventative. And the idea around hesitation of like, what in the future are these vaccines, potentially side effects, et cetera. But we certainly have seen it. I know in many states, the HPV vaccine became a part of the required immunizations for childhood immunizations so that it it was added to that list, just like the other ones. And we have seen a decrease in that. But I do think as easy as HPV is to transmit, that we still have to keep those messages out there that we can prevent cervical cancer or any kind of complications related to at least four to six types of HPV. Mm -hmm. You know, and just like that campaign, it does feel like there have been years and years of efforts to decrease the numbers of STIs and STDs, right? But it does feel like there is still an increase, like you mentioned. What do you feel like it's going to take to like finally see a decrease? And what do you make of the fact that we are still seeing such high numbers of things like chlamydia and syphilis? If I could use a couple of terms, like, you know, like in a period, or maybe a comma. I mean, interesting enough, racism is really at the root of a lot of this. 
oppression, power, and capitalism. And I say that because now we have so many newer technologies and we also have had multiple technologies where there's some things that can prevent multiple things. So like it could be pregnancy and HIV or HIV and other STIs. And so we have something called DoxyPrep that is available. A lot of people in the community The general community may not know about it. I think the marketing, just like a lot of things, have started in communities where, let's say, scientists or researchers will say are more at risk, like gay men. And I think that's fair. But I also think we have to look at the intersectional approaches around that and how a lot of communities are vulnerable. And so we need to promote DoxyPrep equitably and inclusively. The same would be true for HIV PrEP. So the pre-exposure prophylaxis are actual medications that people can take to help protect them from, we want to say doxyprep, that will protect folks from gonorrhea if they take this medication. And then we have PrEP, which is the mainstream one where we're now seeing more black women in particular thinking about, you know, your work and sometimes who you're supporting black women having more exposure and access to prep to prevent HIV. But in the beginning, prep wasn't fully marketed to our community in that way. And even if it was, it wasn't financially accessible either. So, I think we have to look at making sure when we get advances in our technologies that it's available and accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing that in and, and clarifying because I was going to ask you, like, is doxyprep the same one? But it sounds like it's those are two, two different, different yeah. medications, one for gonorrhea and mm-hmm. one for HIV prevention. Got it. Got it. So continuing with that that line of thinking, are there other things that Black women need to be aware of in terms of like our particular risk factors for certain STIs? Like, are there other things that you've seen or in your work that you think Black women need to really have on their radar? I do. I think that we really have to think about our overall sexual health and ensuring that we're doing the best that we can in terms of monitoring our overall sexual health and wellness, whether that be any time, and I don't say sexual health, like just our health in general. So if we get a cold or we're really stressed out, our immune system is going to be compromised. And just like getting pregnant in a sense, getting an STI or STD, everything has to be just right. So it has to be that A, you're exposed to it by someone and that B, it can actually get into your body. And then C, the part that where I'm speaking to our overall health, like how is your body able to potentially fight off this virus or this bacteria? Because your immune system plays a part in whether you get infected or not as well. And so if we can really take care of our health, being stressed out, if you already have a diagnosis in particular for herpes, if you don't manage your stress, herpes is activated by our nervous system. And so if you're at a state of stress, even if you're taking medication to manage it, a lot of times you have what we call outbreaks in herpes that you can't suppress the outbreaks until you don't have one. And so with one of the medications that suppresses, you have to not have that outbreak. But if you're at a state of stress, 
you're always in kind of an outbreak state because you might have an outbreak and you go into recovery and then another outbreak kind of overlaps that one. So you don't have that space to take the medication to suppress HIV. I remember working with a student who was in law school and I'm pretty sure that was stressful. And she was in a long distance relationship and she had a herpes diagnosis and she was so frustrated. She went to our counseling center because she really needed to manage her stress. And in turn, that was something that could help her manage her herpes outbreaks as well. So we really have to take care of our overall health in general to help keep that, you know, things at bay or manageable, may not prevent it, but at least we have a strong immune system to help fight it off and help with the recovery as well. Mm-hmm. More from our conversation after the break. Attention all last-minute shoppers. Just a reminder that Mother's Day is May 12th. And if you're like me, you're still trying to figure out the perfect gift for the amazing moms in your life. But no worries, Macy's has got you covered. They've got gift guides to make shopping a breeze. Whether you're looking for the perfect pieces for your fashionista mom or for your best friend who's celebrating her very first Mother's Day this year, you can shop by price, by category, And they even have specialty lists to help focus you even more, like a list for the mom who has it all and a list of items that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted. Right now, some of this year's hottest items include digital picture frames and Polaroid cameras. With the help of their gift guides, I'm sure you'll find just the right thing. Head on over to Macy's.com slash gift finder for the perfect inspiration for Mother's Day. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Forum is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. Growing up watching media legends like Gwen Ifill and Robin Roberts always gave me the security that stories that matter to me would be told. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. 
AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. So I feel like the answer to this will be a lot because you are a sex educator. But what role do you feel like education has in decreasing the number of STIs that we typically are seeing? I think it has a huge role. I mean, I came into this work old school, pre the full internet. We had like a little bit of internet and we had hotlines. People were calling from all over the United States asking questions and questions that you think is kind of common knowledge, but people really don't know. Like, how is the disease transmitted? What are the signs and symptoms? Where do I even go to get tested or treatment? And those are things I think as someone who works as an educator, take for granted because I have the answers and I've had these conversations with people who are doing the same thing. And so education can play a role to ensure that people can do their best to protect themselves. When I think about STD prevention and education, I use a term we all know better than we do. And I can also equate that to like flossing your teeth. In general, I can say if we were to think about firsthand defense for STIs is condom use. Well, abstinence, right? Because people are always going to say, well, if you abstain, but again, that's not a choice people have freely because of non-consensual events. And it's not a choice that's realistic for some people. And it's just not a choice people want, period. But if we go to the next line of defense, which would be condoms, there are people going back to flossing teeth Pretty much everyone knows and has heard that a condom can prevent pregnancy and transmission of infection. However, there are reasons why people choose not to. Everyone knows you should floss your teeth because it's going to help you have better dental health. But people have reasons that they choose not to floss, even if it's I don't have time because I'm rushing out the door every day. So I'll brush my teeth, but I don't floss them. There are going to be reasons why people don't use condoms. But through education, we can help people make behavior change. And so how do I make time? Or if I don't like the way condoms feel, how do I make them feel better? And I'm living with a guilt trip. Well, I'm not living. I'm recovering because I know you're a therapist. So I'm recovering (laughs) from the guilt trip of being programmed in a prevention world that used to tell people, oh, condoms can feel just as good or they feel just as good or put a little lube on it. And that's really not true. Like in theory, they can feel better, but it doesn't feel the same. You can get some that are thin and that may feel better. But ultimately, we have to make condoms enjoyable. It's like if you get a a meal that you're hungry, but it's not really satisfying, you might put a little sriracha or hot sauce on it, and it's going to make it a little more pleasurable and enjoyable, but it's still not what you might have wanted to taste originally. So you added something to it. And I think 
Education allows us to explore and explain how to make things more pleasurable that are actually a preventive effort. When you think about PrEP, a lot of people don't like taking medication or have a hard time, you know, swallowing pills. But through knowing that this is something that can help reduce HIV transmission, that's just another bonus and relief that you don't have to worry about as much as you would if you didn't have that type of preventive efforts. So I think education is paramount. Yeah, I appreciate those analogies. I think that's super helpful to really help people understand like why sometimes we don't make the choices that we maybe know we should make, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure that you are aware of this and the TBG team found this article recently fascinating. So there has been an increase, of course, in like STDs and STIs in elder care homes. Have you have you seen this? Can you talk with us a little bit about like what is causing this spike? Like what's happening with this population? The biggest thing, and this actually started a few years back, like at least in my experience here in North Carolina, I won't name any places, but <laughs> but there are articles available online. Should you Google? But it's really that idea of like, as we grow older, that we're not sexual beings. We don't have desires and we're not connecting. But you got to think about it. We're, we're still going to have feelings. We're still going to have desire. And a lot of the centers where people live and facilities, they also have opportunity, right? And so, <laughs> you know, there's opportunity to actually engage in sex. And so we don't make condoms available. I recently had a conversation with a local Department of Aging to talk about coming to speak with their residents and their staff who are there about pleasure, about aging, and about safety and sexuality. Because until we're gone, we're going to be sexual. And the idea is that we don't provide prevention information because we think we're out of the childbearing age. And so pregnancy is not of importance, but STIs still should be. Also, there are people, even if they're not having relationship and physical intimacy within the resident or in the facility, they have people who are coming in and sex workers and girlfriends, boyfriends, whomever could actually come and visit and bring things into the facility as well. So we really, I think the rise is not having conversations about pleasure and intimacy as people age and then only equating risk factors for sex with pregnancy prevention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it does feel like prevention overall has moved away from so much like Mm -hmm. don't get pregnant, right? Because it feels like that was the focus for a very long time. Can you talk a little bit about that transition that you've seen? I think people are embracing what we call sex positivity, where there's more to healthy sexuality than disease or pregnancy prevention. I also think, at least from a public health perspective, and I hope This is true universally, although I know there are challenges, is that we have come to the realization of the stigmatizing effect of some of our prevention efforts, right? So if you look at data and disparity in numbers and communities of color, and I specifically think about the Black community and Black women and girls being stigmatized as being hypersexual or the ones who actually need a long-acting reversible contraception versus being able to choose from the many methods that are available that work for them, we are moving towards and not just the things you shouldn't do, 
But the things you can do are encouraged to do as part of being sex positive and experiencing pleasure. I always give credit to Dr. Jocelyn Elders, who was our first African-American Surgeon General, although she paid the cost for advocating for a masturbation, which is a very sex positive approach. She's left the door open for people like me and others to continue talking about it and promoting getting to know your body, doing things safely, and another option to experience pleasure that doesn't involve someone else. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing her up because, yeah, she definitely was not looked upon favorably, I think, at the time no. when all that was happening. Yeah. <laughs> so I think of something else that people could benefit from is hearing more about like how they should take care of themselves like post like a sexual act. So what kinds of things should someone be doing kind of immediately after sex that is like good for your health? Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about urinating, so emptying your bladder. Some people say before and after. I think there's some conflicting things there, but urinating, not necessarily, you know, having to shower, but definitely separating for a little while, like discarding any condoms, if there are sex toys or any other objects being used to make sure that they are clean properly and just keeping an eye out on, again, what's happening in your body post intimacy, just to make sure everything is air quotations normal for you in that situation. I would definitely say prior to, though, having those conversations with your sex partners, if you're able to, I know sometimes someone that you might encounter might not be a long-term partner, might not be someone you know very well, but you could still try to approach asking the questions and not making assumptions about their health There's a level of trust there. You have to take that into consideration. But post keeping in touch with someone as someone who has served as a contact tracer. Well, I use that COVID language, but I was a disease intervention investigator that we had to go find people that other people had sex with to tell them that they might have been exposed or to tell them that they exposed someone. And so in this age of technology, Try to have people's information because it makes it so much easier. That's really important. As I was telling you about syphilis being 100% preventable, if someone has sex with someone and then they go and they develop that first sign and get tested and it's positive, if they've had sex with other people even during that time period, but if they can give the healthcare provider the information, that person can be traced, contacted, and given medication to prevent them from actually ever getting syphilis themselves and giving it to someone else. So having information, even if it's someone you don't know well, you met on an app or whatever, and having enough contact information should this occur makes it easier too to help prevent disease from spreading in the community. Mm. More from our conversation after the break. Attention all last-minute shoppers. Just a reminder that Mother's Day is May 12th. And if you're like me, you're still trying to figure out the perfect gift for the amazing moms in your life. But no worries, Macy's has got you covered. They've got gift guides to make shopping a breeze. Whether you're looking for the perfect pieces for your fashionista mom 
or for your best friend who's celebrating her very first Mother's Day this year. You can shop by price, by category, and they even have specialty lists to help focus you even more, like a list for the mom who has it all and a list of items that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted. Right now, some of this year's hottest items include digital picture frames and Polaroid cameras. With the help of their gift guides, I'm sure you'll find just the right thing. Head on over to Macy's.com slash gift finder for the perfect inspiration for Mother's Day. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Forum is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. So kind of continuing along that vein of having some of these conversations with partners or potential partners, how and when do you suggest someone share that they do actually have an STD? Listen, Dr. Joy, that is a very tough question because disclosure can really be dangerous. And so we think about disclosing an STD experience or status we really have to think about the pros and the cons and the wins and the where. And I don't think it really depends. Like some people say it depends on what the infection is or the STI or STD. But I think it may not because the first thing is once you tell someone, you can't untell them and you can't control any time they might involuntarily disclose your status themselves. So that's like, I think the biggest fear that people actually have. And so Oftentimes, you really have to think about 
where this relationship might be going or what did you do to actually prevent any type of exposure? And I say that because if it's herpes, the moral, like if we think about society and more moral thing, people are like, yeah, you should tell people you have herpes. And I think there's a level of truth to that, but I also think there's a consequence to that. And so if you think about the science of it, if you're not experiencing an outbreak, if you're on suppressive therapy and adding if you use a barrier method, then the likelihood of you transmitting that is very slim. Same would be if you're like on prep or something like that. But it becomes tricky because the moral tends to outweigh the science. So we have something with HIV in particular called U equals U. So if someone's living with HIV and they're on their meds, they are in good health, they are what we considered undetectable, so there's very small trace amounts of HIV in their blood and body fluids, then they are very much likely to be untransmittable. However, we wouldn't tell everyone to say, go out and have uh, the type of sex that would cause the exchange of body fluids. But also we know if you're on medication and you're undetectable, the likelihood of transmission is also going to be low. So there's the science and then there's the moral aspect. I don't know where the two meet. It's really based on the individual and also knowing that there are risks associated with disclosing, but there's so many benefits because a lot of people are becoming more educated so they wouldn't be as fearful of having physical, intimate experiences with you because they know how to protect themselves. And so that's the piece where we were talking earlier, education comes into play because now the more educated I am, if I were someone who, let's say we're living with herpes, the better I can educate you while I'm disclosing my status so you fully understand where we are and then also normalizing this is a part of a life experience. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you breaking that down. I wasn't even aware of all of those. Like, okay, the risk is like much smaller if X, Y, and Z are in place. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And it does feel like some of those conversations are probably better had with people that you know yeah. maybe a little better, right? Because it feels like there needs to be some level of trust to even be able to have that kind of conversation. And I know there's some advocates who are put it out on the line and communicate immediately. But again, like they're at a different level in space than potentially, you know, the average person out in the community and what that risk look like for them. Dr. Bass, I wonder if you have any like suggestions or things you could offer to somebody who maybe has had a diagnosis of an incurable STD or an STI and maybe see themselves as like damaged goods, so to speak. Anything that you could say there? It really makes me sad when I hear that because I've seen that time and time again with individuals, like even someone concerned with herpes and being able to become pregnant and a mom and she is a mom now. So that's amazing. But having that conversation early on, she was given a diagnosis. So this is the other thing about our our peers in the healthcare setting who are more the medical actual providers in a sense versus some of the educators is that she was given this diagnosis, but not given any additional information about like, what does that mean to have a herpes diagnosis? And so therefore she just assumed that she wouldn't be able to conceive. 
So that whole stigma around being damaged, like now I have this condition, I can't conceive. So I think the advice is to learn as much as you can about your condition, but then there are so many support groups for persons living with HIV, persons who've experienced HPV, and persons um, living with herpes who can actually educate you on navigating kind of a new normal in a sense because you're experiencing a different space with a diagnosis and there's life after a diagnosis and there's great sex after a diagnosis and really understanding again the science of the condition that you have so that it doesn't interfere with the pleasure and your sexual experiences so I would tell that person to become educated, to feel the feels, because it can be scary, it can be sad, it can um, be alienating, like feeling like you're the only person out there. But given how common many of these conditions are, knowing that you're not alone and there are support groups and resources available. But to really understand that it can be hard and knowing there are going to be ups and downs. A lot of times people are impacted with their mental health because it could cause like onsets of depression um, and maybe even anxiety around the diagnosis, but that there's definitely a way to have a very fulfilling life and a very fulfilling sex life. Mm. So what kinds of conversations should people be having with themselves and with partners or potential partners about protected sex versus unprotected sex? For example, if you are living with HIV, and really even if you think about other chronic conditions, your immune system can be compromised. So using protection really is about you first because you're able to protect yourself. And it's okay to be selfish in that way. It's like, listen, I'm not even worried about you. I'm worried about me. So therefore, we're going to use this method or I'm going to be on PrEP, toxic PrEP, whatever it may be, condoms, dental dams, etc. So it's okay in that regard to be selfish. And I think for others, it's okay to be caring and say it's also about us. Like it's about me first, but then it's about us if we want to have a fulfilling sex life, not worrying about infecting one another with something that could be important. The other part that I'm leaning into as well as someone who's been so prevention minded is understanding that relationships change. And as we grow and we build trust with one another, that having condomless sex isn't the worst thing that can happen because people were already doing it and not necessarily becoming pregnant or getting a diagnosis, but it takes time to build that trust and vulnerability. And for some people, they may never get there. I think we probably know plenty of people who are having condomless sex for a range of different types of relationships, and it hasn't been detrimental. And so while we still want to promote the use of condoms, barriers, and any other preventive methods, we also know that some people get into that place in their relationship where there's an opportunity, I'm going to use the word to relax it or understand and connect with their partner in such a way that that is, may not be a choice that they're still willing to make for different reasons. 
So you've mentioned several times, Dr. Baz, this idea of how technology has really impacted what we know and what we can learn about STIs and STDs. I'm curious to hear a couple of different things. So I want to hear how technology has maybe made your job maybe easier and more difficult. And I also want to hear about social media now (laughs) is a part of the landscape that probably wasn't a part of your job maybe, what, 10, 15 years ago? And so I also am curious to hear your thoughts about like current conversations you're hearing about STIs on social media. So I think the first thing in the advances in technology has been a like the dating apps being open to the federal government as well as state and local government programs being able to provide educational and informational like commercials or marketing and tips on safe sex. Like I remember Bumble was one that was open to it and some of the other ones and, you know, meeting with app developers to figure out like how to Mm. even create something that could be transferable as educational commercials or infomercials or slots marketing, so to speak, on these apps and and apps being open to it and understanding, you know, and sometimes we're in a crisis mode around that. But then even with the app developers, we have some apps that are available where maybe you're a little hesitant to, you find out you have an STD, you get a diagnosis and you really don't want to confront this person. Or maybe you don't even have all that person's information, but you can put that person's information in an app and a message will be sent to them that could potentially protect your anonymity or if you want to disclose who you are, but not you having to do it yourself, but this app sends a message. So we have new apps like that that can notify people once you put your information in if they need to encourage them to go get testing. So I think those are some of the positive advancements. Some of the challenges are still the TikTok experts, you know, like TikTok is an amazing (laughs) place to get information. A lot of social media is, but there are so many people who are providing misinformation that as educators and trained professionals, we're having to counter where they are. And people have a large following gives them way more credibility than someone who's either working in this work or, you know, studying and researching it as well. So you have to counter that and being able to reach out to some of those influencers to let them know when information is accurate or not. It seems like many of my colleagues will get banned as credible sources than those who are not credible. Like I've had my Instagram taken mm-hmm. away and I was like, wait, but I'm doing good work. I'm trying. <laughs> so because you also are, you know, heavily embedded in working with students, what kinds of conversations are you seeing them have about STIs, either on social media or just even in person? Well, I've been fortunate, you know, here in North Carolina to work with some students in particular who are open and encouraging their peers to have these conversations. So at my school, we have a peer education group that's been established since about 2001, providing education, coordinating testing events. I'm at an HBCU and a lot of our HBCUs have engaged in programming similar to this to educate and or connect with their local health department. So resources beyond student health 
is available to students. And you can see that on other majority campuses as well. I think our students are open to it. I love teaching my class. I get to ask them beyond even STDs, like what are some of the topics people want to know? And people in the last few semesters have talked about what it means to be sex positive, um, actually being activists around sexual health and access to STD service as well as reproductive services and reproductive justice. So I think what we're seeing is students want to be informed, but they don't want to be oppressed. And I think as a student who felt like there was a little bit more of oppression and judgment and thinking about balancing respectability politics, our student population, I think, is looking or in general, not just my campus, are looking for ways to be sexually liberated and safe at the same time. And they want valid, readily available resources to be educated on and how to educate their peers. If I tell my class, oh, so-and-such is on Instagram, you should follow them because they talk about this. I can reach out to that person and say, how many new followers did you get today? And they, they, I'll say, I think those are probably my students or my students' friends because they want <laughs> to have it readily available. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier support groups for people that they can join, like if they have a new diagnosis. Can you share any resources that might be helpful for people if they have a new diagnosis or they just want more information? Absolutely. One of my favorite people to follow is Courtney Brame. He leads Something Positive for Positive People, which is a support network and resource entity for persons living with herpes. And I think some of what they offer actually can apply in general. Dr. Gabrielle Evans, as well as the Minority Sex Report, they also provide information Dr. Evans shares about her own personal experiences living with herpes as well. The American Sexual Health Association, which is actually our oldest U.S.-based sexuality education organization, proud that it's right here in North Carolina and I used to work there. That's where that hotline I was telling you about was established. But now they, you know, online web resources and support groups, as well as I'm going to say virtual appointments with providers who specialize in HIV or HPV or herpes treatment and support. So there are a lot of different places where people can actually get resources if they're navigating a diagnosis. Thank you for that. And what kinds of suggestions would you give to family members or friends who may need to support someone who has just gotten a new diagnosis? Now you're in my personal business because, you know, as an educator, I, I was just thinking about a relative who had gotten a diagnosis and it was almost like they forgot what I've ever said to them. Or maybe it didn't hit then because I don't know, they maybe because they didn't have to deal with it, but just reevaluating and letting people know how things are transmitted. I think about like a person having an HIV diagnosis and being invited over to dinner and getting like paper plate and the disposable fork and spoon and how awful that felt for them. So I think family and friends need to be as educated so that when something does 
happen in the family environment that they can remain supportive and fully understand that you can take precautions, you should take precautions, but you don't have to go to an extreme and you don't have to really reinforce the stigma of being diseased or whatever. I think also understanding that sometimes, so this is when I said you're in my business, like for me, sometimes I'm just your cousin. I'm not the Southern sexologist and nobody cares. And so it's important to know that education is available. It might be available in your family, but at least get it from somewhere. And then also, I think what I try to do in my family or trying to do is to break the generational secrecy and stigma and shame around sex in general. Like just being open to say like, we don't want the next generation to feel as lost as we may have felt. So thinking about liberating, being sexual free and not experiencing some of the issues and challenges we had to experience by actually sharing our stories in context, right? And within boundaries so that it's a learning experience for the the generation behind us. Thank you so much for that. You have given us so much today, Dr. Vaz. If you had to kind of distill all of what we've talked about to like three major things you'd like for people to walk away from this conversation knowing, what would they be? I would want people to walk away with the desire to really learn more about their bodies, to learn more about the different infections and how they work, including the prevention of, but also what it's like living with a diagnosis. And then most importantly, like I just said, sharing anything that you learn with the next generation and even like your peers and your friends and family right now who might be the same age as you. So where can we stay connected with you, Dr. Vaz? What is your website as well as any social media channels you'd like to share? Sure. So my website is www.tanyambass.com and I'm on Instagram at Dr. Tanya M. Bass. So you can slide in my DMs if you need to <laughs> appropriately. <laughs> <laughs> and can we find you on TikTok as well? Yes and no. I'm there. I'm a voyeur. I am a voyeur on TikTok, but I am there as Tanya Vass. Yes. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. We will be sure to include all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Bass. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad Dr. Bass was able to join us to share her expertise for this episode. To learn more about her and her work, visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 326. And don't forget to visit sexpositiveseptember.com for all the other incredible conversations we've had this month. And remember to text two of your girls right now to share this episode. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, visit our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic or just be in community with other sisters, come on over and join us in the Sister Circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet designed just for Black women. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. This episode was produced by Frida Lucas, Elise Ellis, and Zaria Taylor. Editing was done by Dennison Bradford. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. What? 
The reviews for Sisterhood Heels are rolling in, and I simply cannot stop smiling. At the Hot Girl Books on Instagram shared, Finished reading this warm hug of a book last night, and wow, it made me want to hug my sister friend so bad. Sisterhood Heals is a beautiful guide on how we as Black women can use our community and friends to aid in our healing process. Thank you so much for the beautiful review. Have you grabbed your copy yet? Get one for yourself and a friend at sisterhoodheals.com. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate girl bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 